llevando así, así. from, I was about to say the dead, but haven't been. I've been on vacation. Actually been back to work for quite some time too. What you heard in the beginning of this episode was me being in New York City, which was a wondrous experience. Again, I've been there before, but this time walked around, did a lot of walking, which was magnificent. Uh, met people, met old friends, um, to the northern regions of New York and experience some splendorific neoliberalistic trap in the shape of Kikwit, which is uh, Dutch actually, but it's also the name of a Rockefeller estate that is open to the public, somewhat open, mind you, and you have to bring a tour guide who'll tell you that all the um, extreme wealth that the Rockefeller family has accumulated and are now displaying is for philanthropic reasons. Yeah, right. So, otherwise, things were good in New York. I really love the weather, the people, the atmospheres, the graffiti, the chance to meet Dave Garn from Depeche Mode on a street corner. That was really strange, but it happened. Um... But otherwise, things are good. I just read an interview with Percival Everett in the Paris Review, the uh, latest edition, or the, well, next to latest, I'm not quite sure. He was talking with the uh, interviewer about race, and he was picking up Blazing Saddles, the 1970s Mel Brooks comedy, which actually works in, a, in an ironic sense. And Everett says this, I'm going to be quoting him. What's interesting about Blazing Saddles is that no one could make it now. It reminds me in some way where we were a lot smarter talking about race in the 70s than we're talking about race now. My students look for me to, uh, look to me for permission to laugh interviewer in a particular scene. Uh, and Everett says, the use of the word nigger in the film is one that, and this is sweet in a way, gives them trepidation. They don't know what to do. I'll tell them. It's a word. They'll be ill-advised to use it in the neighborhood of USC, but in the context of the film and the understanding of the problem that the film is addressing, it's every bit as valid as the use of nigger in Huckleberry Finn. 
And then the interviewer says, my favorite scene is when Bart get, first gets to town as the new black sheriff and everyone pulls a gun on him and he escapes by, by holding himself hostage. Uh, and then says, uh, it's, it's amazing how intelligible it is to Bart's audience and Bart is the book that Everett has written, but never mind that. Since they can't accept the idea of a black lawman, it simultaneously performs the roles of the black criminal and the black victim, and then it is completely intelligible, uh, intelligible to them. Uh, they can accept in both roles at once, even though they cancel each other out. So that was really interesting. And then the interviewer, not, not to go into race, but he says, I don't want to ask a reductive question. What's the role of race in your work? Or something like that. I'm hesitating because I don't want to sound dumb. And then Everett interrupts and says, that's never stopped me, which is really sweet, I think. And the interviewer says, so I'm going to go ahead and risk it. And Everett says, there are two ways to approach the race thing. One is the unfortunate marginalization of American writers who happen to be black by calling them black writers, which tacitly acknowledges the existence of something else that would be mainstream and so ghettoizes the work immediately. That is the unfortunate part. One allows that. One fails to acknowledge the truth that there is no such thing as a black American experience. There are experiences of black Americans, and those experiences are as wide and varied as those of white Americans. If it were the case that one would go into the bookstore and see the white male American books section, there would be a problem with that. But even as I say it, you can see how idiotic that would be. That said, every novel has in it the people who experience the world that's depicted. Some of the characters will be white and some will be black, and that will inform not only what they experience, but how the reader experiences the novel. And that shouldn't have anything to do with any label placed on the book. I actually think that's quite lovely to, to read. Everett sounds like a very sane person. I'm going to read one of his books because of it. Lovely. I'm a member of a uh, social book site that's called Goodreads. Um, it, it's basic. I mean, I basically use it to review stuff I read. But but first and foremost, I keep track of the books I have to read. I mean, that are in my book list in some sort of sense. Uh, otherwise, it would all fail for me. It's electronic. I can reach it anywhere. Yada. Anyway, I've started now finally reading Alan Moore's Jerusalem. Alan Moore is this Neolithic, magnificent English writer who's been doing comics forever. Um, and his magnum opus to me will probably, I'm guessing, always be V for Vendetta, turned into a quite a not working very well version of a film with Natalie Portman and John Hurt, I think, and Hugo Weaving. But Jerusalem is a major piece of work. In checking the number of, in counting the number of pages in my Kindle version of this book, it's 1,700 something pages long. So that means to read 1% of the book, it's what, 17 pages? And if I read 17 pages a day, that would take me 100 days to finish the entire book. Now, I know myself well enough to know I'm not going to read seven page, 17 pages every bleeding day, but it's quite interesting. It reads like Proust in the sense that it's, it's weaving. It kind of flows. The language is so 
natural and, and, and it's actually such a great piece of work that I actually forget the pressure of reading such a monumentally long book, which often kind of hits me on the head. Um, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's quite brilliant. I'm going to read some of the uh, stuff from it. These are just stuff that I've highlighted in my Kindle, which means I get it automatically saved to text file, blah, blah. So, up on the left ahead, two hulking, sorry, up on the left ahead, two hulking monoliths rose up. The tall Cray brother forms of Beaumont Court and Claremont Court, bird-soiled and lime-streaked headstones, slowly decomposing over the community that had been cleared to, to raise them. The book is set in Northampton, which is Alan Moore's hometown and where he lives and has lived for a very, very long time. The book actually champions the time in such a sense that it, it's completely saturated in it and vice versa, because I think actually the town is the better so far from the book existing, being about it. It's such a thing. He, he writes in such a special way. Here's another one. He peeled the cuticle of cellophane that held the packet's plastic wrap in place down to its quick, chucked off the, the wrapper's top and tugged the foil away that hid the tight-pressed and cork-buzz-bead ranks beneath, the crinkled see-through wrapping and unwanted silver paper crushed to an amalgam and shoved carelessly into mixed trouser pocket. It's all very good. It's so strange. It's beyond. It's a bit like re reading... David Foster Wallace too. I mean these long delving sentences almost like Jose Saramago as well but still when he uses fancy words he uses them well and he does I mean he's a he's he's a man of the people um, another one Mick pulled a clump of cigarettes out from the pack, approximately half, half a dozen thick, and gave them to the barefoot psychotropic casualty. If I were you, mate, I'd go off and find yourself a quiet place to sit down where you can sort your head out, somewhere out of doors without the ceilings and the corners and all that. I'll tell you what, down at the other end of Scarletwell Street over there, there's a nice bit of grass with trees for shade. They'll be in blossom around now. Go on, mate, it'll do you good. Incredulous with gratitude, the youngster stared adoringly at Mike, as if at something mythical he's never seen before, a sphinx or pegasus. Thanks, mate. Thanks, thanks. You're a good bloke. You're a good bloke. I'll do that. What you said, I'll do it. You're a good bloke. Thanks. And then another paragraph to finish. He'd gone a step or two before the awful drench, stench of burning garbage made him flinch and snap his head back, scanning from the surrounding terracotta chimneys for a source and founding none. Almad told him, once that to smell burning was the symptom schizophrenics often suffered from, adding, but then they probably set fire to things quite often, so it's bound to be a tricky judgment call.